written thousands of years ago. Every page, every story, inspired from God. Do they apply to me? Is the Old Testament obsolete? With Pastor Jim Scudder, Jr. We are in a world that is advancing very quickly, aren't we? Everything seems to be uh, doubling or tripling and speed and, and uh, you know, what you can do. Sometimes it's a little frightening, isn't it? When you talk about the advancements and people are worried about AI and everything else. Listen, uh, when you know Christ is Savior, you don't need to panic, okay, about any of these things. Uh, we can live a very, you know, kind of a balanced life as Christians. But we do know that things go obsolete. But I'll just tell you this. There is a, a constant, a book that is old, really old, but it's, it's, it's relevant. It's alive. It is, it is something that I can read and, and know how to live and know where I'm going because although it's been completed for over 2000 years and, and, uh, it has been, it has been available for a long, long time. It's still powerful and relevant. And this book isn't growing obsolete. Now, certain things do. As a matter of fact, I have an item uh, up here covered up with the black cloth, uh, something that is obsolete, something that you might know what it is, but your kids and grandkids won't. So I need a child. Would there be any children that would like to volunteer? I see one jumping out of his suit back there. Come on up. There we go. Yes, sir. Uh, this kid's a little shy, so uh, we'll see if he knows what this is. So far, I, I think we've had no child know what any of these things are. Uh, turn around, face the crowd. Okay, what's your name? Cesar. And are you a little shy? No. <laughs> All right, Cesar, let's see if you know what that is. I don't know what it is. You do not know what it is. Okay, we're going to hold it up for everybody to see. And uh, we're, we're on that camera over there. Okay, so some of you I hear, you, you're kind of saying what it is. But you still don't know? No. You want to take a look at it, hold it? Okay. Still no? No. Okay. Well, that's actually good because it proves my point. So, Cesar, this is a slide rule. And this is something that people can use to quickly figure out math problems, uh, multiplication and division problems. And it really has helped, well, not anymore, right? I don't know. Does anyone still use <clears throat> a slide rule in your day-to-day -day life? I mean, we have really, really nice ways, even on our phones, to, to do uh, lots of calculations. So, But this was very, very handy before we had calculators and computers to be able to figure out math problems a lot faster than by hand. This, with this, you could come up with a quick answer on um, this one, I think on multiplication and division, but there are some slide rules that could go into advanced uh, mathematical things. So you did not figure out what that is, which is fine, but you still get what? I don't know. Oh, yeah, you do. That's, there's only one reason you're up here, and that's for uh, Andrew Jackson, right? Is that who that is? Yeah, uh, $20. Uh, Cesar, you need to spend that quick before that goes obsolete, okay? Give him a big hand. Good job. That, uh, 
was invented shortly after someone published a publication explaining the concept of the logarithm. And so once you, once we had that predictive ability, then, uh, you could, you know, put that on to the slide rule and, and that was very, very helpful, uh, back in the day. Uh, so we, we have a lot of things that go obsolete, don't we? But this book is not one of them. Uh, because it says in Isaiah 40 verse 8, the grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever, folks. Isn't that wonderful? So we have a book here that is reliable. And by the way, if you have something that you would like to uh, allow me to use <clears throat> as a demonstration for one of my sermons, uh, I have a feeling we're going to be in this series for a while. Uh, then uh, please bring it to my wife, Karen. And uh, I'm looking for a Rolodex. I would love it to be one of our Rolodexes. Did you find one? Oh, you did. Who's, whose is it? Huh? Oh, great. Okay, good. Uh, I love, I, I don't know, for some reason, I just love those Rolodexes. Uh, whatever. So, um, but we call, we call a portion of this book, a big portion of this book, old. But I want you, I want you to know that it's important. It's an, it, every word in this book is important, okay? And, and the Old Testament is foundational. So is the Old Testament obsolete? I'm going to say no. We could pray and dismiss, but we won't because you know I'm a preacher and I have to preach. But <clears throat> what we're going to do is look at a, a passage in the New Testament and we're going to use it as a springboard to say, okay, if we didn't have this Old Testament principle, this Old Testament passage, would we really know much about what this is? So case in point, Romans 13, it says in verse 3, rulers, it's talking about governmental rulers, those that are in authority uh, as uh, a king or a governor or a mayor, and sometimes you're, you're going to like them, probably most of the time you're not, uh, but that, that these are people that God has given authority to. And they're to use their authority for, for good. It says rulers are not a terror to good works. In other words, if you're a law-abiding citizen, they're not going to do anything. I mean, they're not supposed to do anything to harm you. But to evil, to those that, that do evil, especially the evil of what we're going to talk about today, is intentionally taking a life. He is a minister of God uh, to thee for good, but if thou do that which is evil, it says, what? Be afraid. For he beareth not the sword in vain. He is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. So what is this talking about? Why, why would Paul be writing about this to the Romans? And, and, and what does this mean? I mean, it's talking about extending revenge or wrath with a sword upon those that do evil. Now, I, I look at this and I say, this has to do with the ultimate crime, and that is the crime of taking someone else's life intentionally, okay? So, to springboard back, and what does the Bible say about this, about someone taking another's life intentionally? We go back to Genesis, don't we? We go back to Genesis chapter 9, and we're going to read this and, and uh, talk about it more later in the message. 
It says in Genesis 9, verse 6, Whosoever sheddeth man's blood by man, so this is now God instituting an authority figure. We're calling this the dispensation of human government. God is starting a whole new way of working in the world after the flood. By man, so by by someone's authority that we collectively give that person as a governmental person. If you shed a man's blood, shall his blood be shed. Why? Why? So if evolution is true, if you kill someone, that's just survival of the fittest. Now, we don't believe that, and no one believes that, but it's true. But if we're made in the image of God, now that's different. Okay, so we take it very, very seriously when someone takes someone's life intentionally. Okay, we're going to talk about this, but first we're going to go into the beginning of Genesis chapter 9 and cover a bunch of other things. I'm really excited about my message. I have a lot to talk about. You, you've you been noticing my sermons have been going, going longer, uh, and I think it's just because I'm getting older, and I have a lot more trying to pack in here and Trying to get it out takes a while. So uh, you're going to have to bear with me. No, we, we're always done by 12.15 tomorrow. We're always done by that time. So don't worry about it. Uh, Genesis 9.1 says, And God blessed Noah. Okay, Remember, they have stepped off the ark, and they have sacrificed to God, and God blessed Noah. When you do those things that are pleasing to God, God appreciates that. It's like when your kids are obedient and they do what you tell them to do, there's a harmony and there's there, you want to bless them, don't you, right? So it's this the same idea. God is going to bless them, Noah and his sons, and said unto them, be fruitful and multiply. Why? Because there's only eight people on the whole earth. Okay, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. This This is the idea of taking the human population that has been decimated by the flood and repopulating the globe. Now, they didn't do that, did they? We're going to find out later that they all kind of hung out in one spot after they got off the ark, and they weren't doing what God said to do. We'll talk about that down the road. But after Noah got off the ark, the world had to be so different from the world they had left, right? If you're talking about a global flood, you're talking about massive uh, movements of the continental plates, and you now have high mountains, and you now have uh, you know all of this ash in the atmosphere from the volcanoes and all of these things. The world had to be very, very, very different. Now they're going to have to deal with some things that they wouldn't have had to deal with before the flood, such as massive temperature changes and weather patterns, I think, are now developing uh, volcanism is still happening because that was part of the flood. The fountains of the great deep open, creating these geysers underwater, shooting up into the stratosphere, and that falling as rain. That was part of the whole uh, way that the whole earth flooded. And that would eventually lead to an ice age, which we've already talked about. But after a couple hundred years, because the, the, the sky is, uh, the, the atmosphere is full of particulates from the volcanoes, this ash and things, uh, that would have cooled the earth. Once the oceans would have uh, been very, very warm during the flood, they would have started to cool and condensate huge snowfalls over the northern regions, leading to a massive ice age, which we know uh, happened in this world. So 
a lot of people, though, are very alarmist when they talk about climate. Um, and I'm going to deal with this a little bit today. This is important, and, and I'm going to say, Christians, we have to be balanced in everything, right? Today, we have something called a crisis that was once upon a time called global warming. Now it's called climate change, so my radar goes up a little bit. Why did we stop calling it global warming? Why are we calling it climate change? Because climate change could be anything. If you have a lot of snow and a really cold winter, that's climate change, right? So global warming, you know, obviously I think we, we see the earth and it does seem to be warming up, but the question is, why and how bad is it, right? That's the question. Do we need to be alarmist? Do we need to uh, totally stop burning any of the fossil fuels, coal, uh, natural gas, or oil? These things that they say are releasing uh, carbon emissions, uh, CO2, into the atmosphere. And that's the greenhouse gas that's primarily causing this um, global warming or climate change. But when you call it climate change, and today every hurricane, every wildfire... Every blizzard, the media says, is a result of climate change. So let's talk about this. Here's what I feel about it. I feel that people take these things and make them more into political issues than they, than they really need it to be. Let me, and let me give you a quote, and this is the United States Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA, on their website, when you, when you Google climate change, here's what they say, and I'm just going to point out an obvious, obvious problem with what they say, and maybe see if you can pull this out. It's, and I quote this, concentrations of the key greenhouse gases have all increased since the industrial revolution due to human activities. And I would say, I'm not going to debate that. I mean, we are certainly burning these, these things. Carbon dioxide, methane, nitrous oxide concentrations are now more abundant in the Earth's atmosphere, okay, maybe that's true, than any time in the last 800,000 years. How, how can you say that? How, how, and that's on their website. This is, this is a fact that the US EPA says is, this is a crisis, this is a problem. I mean, if you said in the last 100 years, when we've been keeping records, okay, I can, I can understand that. But to say 800,000 years, when we believe that the earth is much, much, much younger than that? So how do they say that? Well, they, they have studies that they, you know, tree rings and, um, you have, um, uh, ice cores, you know, they'll, they'll core down into, into ice and they see the different levels. Here's, but there's huge problems with those things. Assumptions. They don't know. They have to assume a lot when they start to extrapolate into way back in history. And we can't do that accurately. We cannot do that. Even when they, oh, here, here's one thing. For the, when they, when they look at the ice, the, the ice sheets and they drill down in, they count the, they count the layers and they assume every layer is a, a year, right? But one thing that they did they went to recover a airplane from World War II that had landed on ice and they were just going to go and dig down, I don't know what they thought, but it would be not that deep and cut it out and bring it. And they, they eventually did. But this thing was really, really deep, way deeper than they thought. Because, you know, you can have huge dumps of snow and each dump of snow creates that layer. 
You don't know if that's an annual layer or is, is there many of those per season, right? So you can't say things like the earth is warmer today than any time in the last 800,000 years. You can't say that. So I'm just pointing out something. I'm not saying there isn't something happening. We, obviously, we know the earth is warming, but is, is, it, is it a thing that we should be panicking about? A CO2 is something that is an essential to life. You know, it's, it's an important uh, carbon dioxide. It's very important to photosynthesis, right? So anyways, so I just wanted to point out something, a, a few facts. These are three facts that are 100% true. Hurricanes have not increased in the last 100 years, okay? The, the, uh, the number of hurricanes have not increased in the last 100 years. That's a fact. Floods have not increased in the last 70 years, okay? And Greenland's ice sheet has not has not uh, been melting more rapidly. It's been about the same rate in the last 80 years. Okay, these are facts. And let's deal with facts. Let's talk about this in a, in a factual way. But the flood would have been something that would have really, really made a lot of difference in, in climate. And certainly uh, they, had, they were experiencing a whole new world. Here's an example. There's a volcano that erupted a year and a half ago in Tonga, in the, in the Pacific. It's called the, the Hunga Tonga volcano. It's kind of fun to say that, right? And here's a little bit of, the, from satellites, we were able to uh, uh, film this and high speed it, and you can see the eruption of the Hunga Tonga volcano. And there's a news story that I came across. I mean, look at that thing. It's an undersea volcano near the one of the volcanic islands, Hunga Tonga. And here's a story that I read. NASA, unprecedented underwater volcanic eruption, likely responsible for current heat wave. I thought the current heat wave is because humans have been putting a CO2 into the atmosphere. Okay, Here's the story. The huge amount of water vapor hurled into the atmosphere, as detected by NASA's microwave limb sounder, could end up temporarily warming Earth's surface. On January 15, 2022, the Hunga Tonga undersea volcano erupted, ejecting enough water into Earth's stratosphere to fill 58,000 Olympic swimming pools. This is according to a NASA study published in the journal Geophysical Research Letters. We've never seen anything like it, said Louis Milan, an atmospheric scientist with NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Southern California. He led a new study examining the amount of water vapor at the Tonga volcano injected into the stratosphere. Previous major volcanic eruptions like Pinatubo and St. Helens have led to a cooling effect on the Earth because of the ash and other particulate matter is now up in the atmosphere combining to reflect rays of the sun back into space. However, in the case of this Tonga volcano, since it was underwater, it was the caldera was 500 feet below the surface of the South Pacific Ocean. That resulted into a muted particulate ash cloud. So we didn't have as much ash in the atmosphere, but we did have uh, from this a greatly enhanced vaporizing of the surrounding water. Okay, all that water that was vaporized and shot up into the stratosphere is affecting climate today. It says, ejecting that vapor into the stratosphere where it will have the effect of trapping heat on the Earth's surface. Measurements from the microwave limb sounder on NASA's Aura satellite indicate the excess water vapor is equivalent 
to around 10% of the amount of water vapor typically residing in the stratosphere. Now, that this estimate was conducted in the late 2022s, has been revised by the European Space Agency from 10%. Now they think that this one volcano added to the water vapor already in the atmosphere to 30%. So this one volcano, one volcano has a huge effect in, in warming because the water vapor actually will warm the planet. Okay. The likelihood of our present warming trend owing to this dramatically increased entirely natural greenhouse effect of water vapor from the Tonga eruption has been admitted by the two major space agencies, NASA and the European Space Agency, yet has remained largely unreported in the media. Do you smell something there? I'm not saying that this is all the reasons that we're warming, warmer today, but Every, every heat wave has been blamed on humans burning fossil fuels. Let's stop and let's think about this and let's, let's not be, uh, uh, freaking out, right? Freaking out. Uh, I think we have a lot bigger problems to face in this world, like stopping, uh, the, uh, uh, uh stop allowing the murder of the innocent unborn babies. Okay. That to me is a much larger problem in our society than um, so-called climate change. So the world has changed a lot since the flood. Today, we're going to find out that eating vegetation, uh, plants, fruits, and vegetables, that after the flood would not be enough to sustain the human population. Now, today, maybe it could because of advancements in farming and stuff, but certainly for most of human history from the flood, you could not be sustained by just eating um, a vegetarian diet. And then, so God is instructing, and we'll see that in a second, that they could now eat meat. Not only would that help man survive, but there's another thing. When you're eating meat as a human, you're killing an animal. Now, some of you didn't know this. You thought that, that, um, chicken came already in that form to McDonald's, and, and you didn't know that a chicken had to lose its life. And if we ever had to go back to, and most of us, many of us in our area, in a suburban area of a major metropolitan city here in Chicago, uh, we, we don't go out and kill our, our meat, do we? But every time that humans would kill an animal, it would remind them of the seriousness of sin and the consequences of sin. Okay? So that's something to keep in mind as well. But in the original creation, there, there weren't killing of animals. The first animal killed, we believe, would have been the animal that God killed to clothe Adam and Eve. Okay? And then the sacrifice of, of Abel was an animal. But we know that violence increased dramatically. We know that Cain killed Abel and we know that, that humans, uh, have, have really, uh, polluted this world with blood. Okay. But the original creation, man and animal was a calm one. You know, most animals today are afraid of you. Did you know that? Most animals. Uh, you, now we can domesticate animals and we can, you know, now we have pets and different things, but you, most animals, right? If you walk toward them, we have rabbits in our yard and they're cute and everything, but they'll scurry away and, and chipmunks and squirrels. We were on a little hike. 
once you condition animals, but usually by feeding them, uh, they become friendlier. And this is a rarity. This is my wife, Karen. You're going to enjoy this. Uh, we were out hiking and a little chipmunk came in. And I think the chipmunk had been used to being fed by humans. And, and this is, this is an unusual interaction, right? This doesn't happen every day. Most animals are scared. And this animal was still scared. You know, he'd dart away. Uh, one time Karen had a, a nut or something and the, the, the chipmunk was coming up to grab it and Karen kind of wasn't expecting that and yelled and screamed and pulled back and the chipmunk did a big backflip. I missed it on the video, but here's what's going to happen though. Original creation, man and animal had a peaceful relationship. You didn't have to worry about an, a bear eating you. Uh, you know, the, the, you could, you could play with all these animals, even dinosaurs. Okay. And the Bible predicts when God resets the world back to its original Edenic way that we're going to have this relationship restored with humans and animals. Won't that be cool? Isaiah predicts this in Isaiah 51 verse 3, the Lord shall comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places and he will make her wilderness Desert, desert, inhospitable places like Eden, okay? And her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness shall be found therein, thanksgiving and the voice of melody. So these, uh, the the creation is going to be back to the way it was originally like it was in Eden. And then in Isaiah 11, 6, it talks about how the, the lamb will dwell with the leopard, if you put a lamb and a leopard in the same enclosure today, you will have only one of those animals and it won't be the lamb left, okay? Uh, the leopard will lie down with the kid, the calf with the young lion, the fatling together. A little child shall lead them. Uh, it also says the cow and the bear shall feed. If you put a cow and a bear in the same enclosure today, the bear will feed, Okay. Uh, uh, their young ones shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like an ox. The suckling child, the little baby, will play in the hole of an asp. You're not going to let your little baby play in the hole of an, of an asp. And the weaned child shall put his hand in the cockatrice den. So we have here, a, it will be a lot different, and it was a lot different before sin, before all of that. But after the flood, major changes have happened. And let's look at the next verse in Genesis 9. It says in verse 2, And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon the fowl of the air. So now we have something new. Since the flood, God in, in, um, inserted in animals a fear of humans. And that's usually a good thing, especially if you're talking about a, an animal that can hurt you, right? You don't want them to come towards you. You want them to run away from you, bears and, and lions, and you know the rest. Uh, all that moveth upon the earth of the earth and upon all the fishes of the sea, into your hand they are delivered. So now we have, not only will they have a fear, now we're given permission to eat these animals. Again, I think it's because there wouldn't be enough food um, for to sustain human life because of the changes, the massive changes that happened after the flood. Before the flood, the, the earth was very prolific, growing, um, and something really, really changed after the flood. Every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you, even as the green herb, which that was what they had been given before the flood, uh, they were allowed to eat. 
But now every living thing, every moving thing uh, is now okay for, for food. But flesh with the life thereof, which is the blood thereof, ye shall not eat. Now this is interesting, isn't it? Why would God say you can eat the flesh, but don't eat the blood? Later on in Leviticus, the Bible does explain something that we now know. Today, we now know how important blood is. We didn't always know this. I mean, I think everyone kind of knew it, but until we've really figured stuff out scientifically, uh, we now know that life, the life of the flesh, is in the blood, right? God said that. So why is he saying don't eat the blood? I think he's saying, first of all, we have to respect that life force that is in the blood, Okay, and we know that further on, even in, in our New Testament, there is a mention of not eating blood in Acts. So, um, God understood this. God knew this because he created us. And it's taken us thousands of years to figure this out, that, that blood is so integral and so important and without blood. Now, here's a little video that shows you how amazing blood is and all the things that uh, is is happening that, you know, there's uh, thousands of miles of blood vessels and veins in your body. You can wrap around the earth a couple times in your own body. Millions and millions of blood cells. So here's a little video about that. Blood, 10 pints of life force, coursing through thousands of miles of arteries, veins, and capillaries. Those blood vessels carry blood to every other organ, keeping them functioning and thriving. Our red blood cells carry oxygen and nutrients. Our platelets stop bleeding and help to heal our wounds. Our white cells protect us against infection. And the yellow liquid plasma in which they are suspended carries an array of proteins that regulate bleeding and clotting. I just find that so fascinating that, that all of that is happening and it has to all be designed. And, and when you start to look at biology, you, the human body is defined by systems, cardiovascular, you know, all these systems. Well, how do you have a system without a designer, somebody that can design all of these things. We could not have come about by accident, my friends. We could not have. Now, I'm going to play this again, and I just, I'll be talking over the video, and I want you just to think about how awesome what God did and, and the importance of life. Uh, I'm going to quote a, an article by Jerome Gutman. He's a, a doctor, professor of medicine at Harvard. He writes for The New Yorker. He said, during my training as a hematologist at UCLA 40 years ago, a senior faculty member introduced the program of the study by citing a verse from Leviticus. I love that. I love that. I don't know if they still do that. Probably not. The life of the flesh is in the blood. For the assembled young physicians, this was a biological truth. Red blood, red cells carry oxygen required for our hearts to beat and our brain to function. White cells defend us against invasion by lethal path pathogens. 
Platelets and proteins and plasma form clots that can prevent fatal hemorrhages. Blood is constantly being renewed by stem cells in our bone marrow. Uh, red cells turn over every few months. Platelets and most white cells every few days. Since marrow stem cells spawn every kind of blood cell, they can, when transplanted, restore life to a dying host. Isn't that amazing to you? All of the things that are happening inside of you right now proving without a doubt that we were created. There's a creator. And even people that don't believe in creation, I'm sure he doesn't, uh, still recognized how amazing these things are. We just have the benefit of saying, glory to God. Glory to God. And I, and I know God loves that when we do that. When we recognize him, uh, we did not make ourselves. He made us. Now, let's talk about why it's so bad to not just eat blood. Um, and some people, there's a debate on whether that's okay or not. Listen, if you're into blood sausage, God bless you. I don't understand you, but whatever. But I mean, you know, if it was really good, I would say, okay, let's talk about it. Let's figure this out. But it's uh, whatever. But let's talk about spilling blood. Okay. When, when someone takes the life and we've already given you Genesis uh, six, let's talk about Genesis five. Surely your blood of your lives will I require at the hand of every beast will I require it at the hand of man, at the hand of every man's brother will I require the life of man. Whoso sheddeth man's blood by man shall his blood be shed for in the image of God made he man. Why is it? Why is the death penalty something that we should have in societies? I think it's just really clear here, isn't it? Uh, if you take someone's life, and you meant to do it, I know there's accidental things that happen, and there's there's all these laws, but the, we've had this big debate about the death penalty. And some people say, well, Pastor Scudder, you're so pro-life, and you want to protect the, the life in the womb, but then you're okay with taking a life with a death penalty? Where do you, how do you Christians come up with, you're not consistent. Here's the consistency. Innocent life. Innocent life, folks. If you take the, and, and here's something. I've had the opportunity to minister to a man on death row. He's the next one that's supposed to be executed in Louisiana. Uh, others in this room have also had the opportunity to minister to this man. I love him, truly. He did some heinous things, horrible things. According to scripture, he deserves to die. Um, but he's a new man, right? He, he has put his trust in Jesus Christ and, 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 and there are a lot of incredible things that are, that are happening in his life. So it's, it's a hard thing, right? But I think if we do away with this, I think what we're doing is inviting more murder. I really do. You say, oh, no, there's no deterrent, okay? Again, Romans seems to imply that this is still in place. This is still, you know, we're in the age of grace and we shouldn't be executing anyone. Well, Romans talks about it, right, in, in 13... So I feel like we cannot say uh, we shouldn't be uh, including the death penalty. I know that, I think it was the Boston uh, bombers, the, 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 the two boys, um, the one did not want to be tried as a federal trial. Why? Because the federal system allows for the death penalty. Now, should he face the death penalty? I think even people opposed to the death penalty are for the death penalty if it's just a 
heinous, heinous, horrible thing. Okay? All of us are going to get to that level. Um, the, he wanted to be tried in a place where the federal law wouldn't apply to him. And it's in the state law of Massachusetts, I think they didn't have the death penalty. So to me, that means that it is a deterrent. Okay? Um, and, and here's a story. CBS News put out in 2007, death penalty deters murders, uh, studies say. Again, a, a study that's kind of ignored. Science, and I'm going to quote the article, science does really draw a conclusion. It did. There is no question about it, says Nacy McCann, an economics professor at the University of Colorado at Denver. The conclusion is there is a deterrent effect. A 2003 study he co-authored and 2006 study that re-examined the data found that each execution results in five fewer homicides and commuting a death sentence means five more homicides. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? The results are robust. They don't really go away, he said. He, and this is really interesting. He says, I oppose the death penalty, but my results show that the death penalty deters. So what am I going to do? Hide them? Well, a lot of people do. Statistical studies like this are among a dozen papers since 2001 that capital punishment has deterrent effects. They all explore the same basic theory. If the cost of something, be it the purchase of an apple or the act of killing someone, becomes too high, people will change their behavior, forego apples, or shy away from uh, murder. To explore the question, they look at executions and homicides by year and by state or country, trying to tease out the impact of the death penalty on homicides by accounting for other factors, such as unemployment data and per capita income, the possibilities of arrest and conviction, and more. So they take into account a lot of things. And this is their conclusion. Each execution deters an average of 18 murders, according to the 2003 nationwide study, by professors at Emory University. Other studies have estimated that the deterred murderers per execution at three, five, and 14. So there's a range, but they all say it deters more people getting murdered. Now, they also quote the Illinois moratorium, which happened in 2000. And listen, obviously the problem with capital punishment could be that someone isn't guilty, right? And we certainly would not want to take the life of somebody that didn't commit murder intentionally. But I think that's the rarity by far. And I think that with DNA evidence and things these days, it's a lot more, we're more positive that these things have happened. But that's, that is an issue. But Illinois decided to stop executing people. And that led to, according to the study, 150 additional homicides over four years following uh, that, according to a 2006 study by the professors at the University of Houston. Speeding up executions would strengthen deterrent effect. So that's another issue. It takes so long to go through the system. Uh, for every 2.75 years cut from the time spent on death row, one murder would have been prevented. That's interesting, according to the 2004 Emory study. In 2005, there were 16,692 cases of murder and non-negligent uh, manslaughter nationally. Okay. Think about that. Almost over 16 and a half thousand people murdered. Okay. There were 60 executions in 2005. So again, I go back to this. 
the, the Bible talks about this. It's, it's something that I think is important to our society that, that we have. Now, uh, Prison Fellowship wrote an article about this and, and they're a ministry that wants to, you know, help people that are in prison. And we want to minister to people, certainly. We do here. Every week we do here in our, in our church. And they wrote this about all punishment, especially those involving the death penalty, need to include proportionality. In other words, that the punishment must be proportional to the offense. The extreme sanction of death should be considered only for the most serious offenses. They also say you have to have a certainty of guilt. In the Old Testament, before a murderer could be executed, two witnesses had to confirm his guilt. And certainly we need to be certain about this, or we shouldn't do it. And then intent. You know, numbers established that capital punishment could not be imposed upon the offender if they didn't act intentionally. Due process is another issue. The issue is not simply whether the accused was guilty, but whether he had a fair chance to prove his innocence. And then the article also says that we as a society need a reluctance to execute. Although the law may sound bloodthirsty, it was applied with great restraint. But reluctance should not be confused with refusal. Okay, So I think with these principles, these are things that our society and our law and our state and our country uh, should have. I think the death penalty should be part of our our society. And if we do away with it, if we're going to say we're not going to do it, then uh, we're going to have more people murdered. Now, does God forgive even murderers? Yes. That's the beautiful thing about God. That's the beautiful thing about grace. But you still have to pay the consequences of what you've done, right? And so Let's consider that. Now, we've covered a ton of stuff today, haven't we? We've talked about climate change. we talked about eating meat, uh, blood. Uh, but the bottom line is this. We're all guilty. If we were to stand before God, and, and, and we're at the gate of heaven, and, and God would say, why should I let you in? Well, I was a pretty good person. Everybody says that. I had, I had an inmate that was serving a life sentence Tell me that. I say, why would you, you know, if you were to stand before God, would God let you in? And he's like, well, yeah, I think so. I said, why? Because I'm a pretty good person. Like, I mean, we all somehow think that we're a pretty good person. But the Bible says we're all guilty. We, we do not have innocence in our blood. Now, there was one that had innocent blood. He had no, he had no sin. He never sinned, neither was he born in sin. Uh, the Bible says we're born in sin. It's passed down by our, our, our dad. Turn to your dad and say, thank you. <laughs> well, you should say thank you to your mom and dad because they brought you into this world. If that's all they did, you should love them and, and, uh, and be kind. But the bottom line is we're all sinners. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God, which means that we all are under the same penalty, which is death. Isn't, it, isn't that interesting? I know a lot of guys in prison for life or on death row that are freer than a lot of free people are because no longer are they under that penalty of eternal separation from God because of their faith in Jesus Christ. You say, how is that fair? Well, God put upon his son all of our sins on the cross. Jesus came into this world as God. He was born he had an a earthly a mother, Mary, but he didn't have an earthly father, didn't have that sin nature, neither did he sin. And he said to a religious guy, a pretty good person, 
a really good person, but still a sinner, Nicodemus, Jesus said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, a one of a, one of a kind. This is Jesus. That whosoever, this is to your death row inmate, to your lifer, to you, to anybody, anybody, anywhere, any, any pigment of tan in your skin, any accent you have, any bank account you have or don't have, okay? Whosoever believeth, what does that mean? That means to trust, to put your faith in. Whoever believes in him, again, referring to himself, putting your faith in Jesus, should not perish. That's the ultimate death penalty, eternal separation from God in hell, but have everlasting life. Folks, that's the greatest news in the entire world. If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, you'll be saved from that penalty of sin. Now, let me show it to you this way. The Bible says that my left hand, you and me, we're sinners, my wallet representing sin. We've all sinned, and that sin separates us from a holy God. My right hand represents Jesus. He didn't have any sin, but our sin separates us from him. So what are we going to do? He created us. He loves us, but he cannot tolerate sin. No judge should just let a convicted, proven murderer go. You shouldn't do that. Okay, we all agree on that, right? (laughs) Death penalty or not, we shouldn't let them go. Jesus came and paid for our sin on a cross. It says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, listen to this. For he, which is God, hath made him, which is Jesus, who knew no sin to be made sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. When you put your faith in Jesus, the Bible says that you now have the righteousness of God. And if you're as righteous as God, would he let you into his perfect heaven? Absolutely. But it's not because of anything you've done. It's because of the faith you have put in him and him alone. In Ephesians, it says that by grace, we're saved through faith. Same exact word. One's a noun, one's a verb as John three sixteen, as believe. You're saved through faith and it's not of ourselves. It's a gift of God. Not of works, not anything that you can do that will save you. Now that's the greatest news in the entire world. It's, there's a free thing that God is offering every human called eternal life. And if you'll simply put your faith in what he did for you, what Jesus did for you, put your trust in him, you will be saved forever. Okay. And that's a message we can bring to the free world or to those in prison. And it actually will set both groups free.